Well, last Saturday, I was on my way home. I was doing some errands, and the roads started to get a little icy, right? We're all kind of aware the roads weren't the best last Saturday. And I was getting close to home, and there's one of those stop signs where I always do what I refer to as a California roll. You guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe you call it something differently. You don't quite fully stop, but if a cop's following you, he might let you off the hook type of deal. But this time, I was approaching this stop sign, and something inside of me said, you know what, Mr. Stop Sign? I'm going to fully listen to you. I'm going to come to that, that complete stop, stop for like the five count, and really true. So I'm pulling up to this stop sign. I'm slowing down. I, I, I come to the stop, and I see this other car coming around the corner, and I'm like, oh, they don't know yet. They don't know that it's a little slick. They hit the brakes a little late, and then their car like moonwalks back into the 80s, just straight into the intersection there. And I get home, and I pulled into the, the driveway, and I thought to myself, man, I'm kind of grateful for a stop sign. I don't think I've ever said this ever in the state of my life that, man, you know what I really, really liked today was a stop sign. It's interesting, though, because gratitude is something we have to learn slowly over time. It's something that we try to impress on our kids as we raise them up. We've got a couple friends who are expecting their first child here in a few months. They were at our house hanging out and uh, we got on the subject of like baby shower gifts. And everyone's got like their opinion, like you cannot even fathom raising a kid without one of these. And you fill in the blank. Everyone's got an idea, a thought or whatever it is. And one of the things that my wife suggests to any parent is one of these. It's called a nose Frida. All right. Show of hands. Anybody got one of these at home? Nose Frida. Okay. It's essentially a snot sucker. You put one end up to your child's nostril, the other end you literally suck it out and it helps clean them. And my wife's like, I know it's gross, I know it's disgusting. I personally have never used it, but it's a thing. And it got me thinking, there's gotta be some other pretty weird and bizarre baby gifts out there. And so I did a little Google research and I found some that I wanna share with you this morning. There's what's called a bacon teether, okay? It's literally what it sounds like. It is a teether that tastes like bacon. Now, the Bible says, train up your child in the way they shall go and they not shall depart from it. And so if you want to get ahead of the game, share them the amazing taste of bacon, you know, you're going to want to snag one of those. I found this thing called a baby keeper. I literally thought this was like a meme online, but it's a real thing. It's if you're in a public restroom and you don't want your kid to touch the floor, you put them in this little thing, hangs over the door, just don't forget them and leave them there. I'm sure they wouldn't appreciate it. And then there's the creepiest gift I've ever seen. They're called Zacky hands or Zacky pillows. They're these like creepy hand pillows that help your baby feel like they're being consoled while they are sleeping. It's the weirdest thing. If you buy some of those for someone, we will pray for you because that's just weird. Now, there's some definitely things that are must when you're raising a child. You got to have a diaper bag. You got to have maybe some cute clothes with the super cheesy sayings. And you got to have one of these. You got to have a high chair, right? A high chair is a must have for raising any child. And so a high chair is there because you got to get the kid in place, lock him in so that, that while you're trying to feed them, that they can't really escape. And so it's like a standard in any home, probably there is a high chair. Now, here's the thing. What's the difference, hopefully, between a child and an adult in a high chair? Is that one of them fits and the other does not. Am I right? Like if you went out into a restaurant and you saw a 53-year-old man sitting in a high chair, 
Or if you went over to someone's house and she was like, time for dinner, and she crawls up and straps herself in, that would be kind of weird and ludicrous. Especially if you saw him banging the table, being like, no, 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 no. I wanted stars, not circles, for my sandwich. No, 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 I don't like peas. Where's the butternut squash? The thing is, between hopefully a full-grown adult and, and, and a growing child is this idea that we would hope and presume that an adult is maybe less entitled. See, entitlement says this. Entitlement says, I don't have what I deserve. That's what entitlement is. Just purely for the fact that I was born, I'm alive, I'm here today. I don't have what I deserve and it's your obligation to give it to me just purely from the fact that I think so. Gratitude is on the opposite end of the spectrum. Gratitude says I have what I don't deserve. Gratitude says I did nothing to earn this, to receive this. I have not worked to to receive this gift in any form or fashion. I think honestly, if we were being true to ourselves, we have a little bit of an entitlement issue in our culture today. Maybe just a little one, right? It's a main issue why I'm just not super active on social media anymore. I feel like you go on social media and it's just like entitlement after entitlement after entitlement. Now, the younger generation and the older generation, they kind of blame one another sometimes. The older generation says, well, if the younger generation wasn't so entitled, always wanting someone else to pay for their stuff, they're just lazy, they can't get it together, they don't know how to work hard, and there's maybe some truth in that. But the older generation is just as entitled at times because they say, well, if we could just get back to the way things Used to be. Things were way better in my day when I was growing up. Both of those say are entitlement, that I don't have what I want in the way that I want it. I think we can all agree as we start here this morning is that entitlement, whereas the Bible oftentimes refers to it as grumbling, looks good on no one. Entitlement looks good on no one. If you'd let me, I want to unpack this idea as we continue through the book of Philippians this morning, is that there is great reward in gratitude over grumbling. That there's great reward to be found in a life full of gratitude over grumbling. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue in this series. Philippians chapter 2 this morning. That's where we're going to kind of kick off. We're going to camp there today. A couple other things to note. If you are a note taker, you might have grabbed some on your way in when you grab communion. You can also pull out the First Christian Church app. It's a great way to say if you're new with us, you can connect, fill that out. If you have questions or prayer requests, you can also follow along in sermon notes. Also something that we started last week is our Growing Faith Scripture Memory Card that one of our goals for us as a church is to memorize Scripture together, to take the truths of God and store them in our hearts and in our minds. So if you didn't grab one of these on your way out at the communion table or the tables right by guest central grab one of these post it in your car post it uh your mirror at home uh your laptop at work whatever it is um and and commit to memorizing scripture with us as a church philippians chapter 2 we're picking up in verse 12 paul begins or continues saying this he says therefore my dear friends if you has always obeyed not only in my presence but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Let's stop there and we're gonna unpack this for a little bit. Paul says, work out your salvation. Joke that I always see coming every single time. It gives CrossFit a whole new definition, does it not? 
And some of us, we might see this, this phrase or this verse and say, hold on, Eric. I thought following Jesus, I thought being a Christian, giving my life up to discipleship meant I didn't earn it. This kind of sounds like there's work for me to do. This kind of feels like I got to earn. Is this this thing that where like God helps those who help themselves type of deal? Like, no, that's not what it is because that's, that's not in the Bible. Let's chat about this for a moment. Paul says you need to work out your salvation. Now the word salvation comes from a root that means rescued. You see, being saved or receiving the grace, the gospel of Jesus has brought freedom into your life. You have been rescued and what you have been rescued from is the punishment, the debt, the bondage of your sin, the separation from Christ. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation, you could think of it as, hey, live out this newfound freedom, this new way of living, this new way of thinking, this new way of being that Jesus has given to you. I kind of like to think of it as, as this. Uh, there's this thing when they try to release zoo animals back into the wild, it's what called uh, reorientation. Meaning as animals have been in captivity, they need to kind of learn in order how to survive. But they have found something interesting over time that any what they call captive born predators, meaning lions, tigers, bears, oh my, that if they are born in captivity, meaning they were birthed into a zoo, that it is more dangerous for them to be released, to be free, to have that liberation yet again. Why? It's because those instincts to keep them alive are not sharp. They aren't strong. And so they need to reorient. They need to learn how to prepare themselves from the freedom they are about to receive. And the same goes with our salvation, Paul is saying, is that you have received freedom. You have been rescued from the debt of your sin, from the bondage, the lies, the deception of the world, but you need to relearn how to live out that freedom that you have been given. And you notice what Paul says. He says, you need to work it out. He doesn't say you work for your salvation. He doesn't say you work to gain your salvation. He says, you need to work it out. We can put it this way. If we think about this in context, Paul might lead us here. He says, the Christian life is not a series of ups and downs, but of ins to outs. Let me say that again. That the Christian life is not a series of ups and downs, rather ins and outs. The Christian life isn't trying to have more ups than you have downs. The Christian life is be really grateful for your ups and try not to let the downs get you too down. No, no, no. The Christian life says Jesus Christ has put something in you by his will, by his grace, by his power. And it's up to you to have that come out, come out in obedience, come out in that care for others. That the grace of Jesus has been instilled in you. If you repent of your sin, believe on Jesus's death on the cross and it wants to work its way out. The grace of Jesus has filled your life and now it needs to come out outwardly in your treatment, your view of yourself and other people. That we store the word of God in our hearts, in our minds, so that we can live it out in obedience. But we need to know what Jesus has placed in you first and foremost. I like to think of it as uh, uncovering dinosaur bones. Like if there's one thing that it, like, if I got a genie and the genie said, you only get one wish, not even three wishes, you get one wish. And I'd first ask, okay, well, is this one of those things where I can ask for more wishes? And if he was like, no, then it's okay. I literally have one wish. I want to discover a dinosaur bone. Like, wouldn't that be just be awesome? Like you're out in the desert and you find something and then you uncover it. It's like, wow, there's a T-Rex here. This is incredible. And think about when they discover dinosaur bones, what do they do? 
meticulously, slowly, over time, they dig around it. Because the reward beneath the surface is too great. They don't want to mess it up. That they want to take their time and slowly brush away this sand. They don't want to ruin anything. They don't want anything to get damaged. And I think in a very real sense, that's what it is with our faith. That your salvation in Jesus Christ is that great reward beneath the surface in you. But it's up to you to take that time to slowly, meticulously bring it to the surface to see that true reward waiting for you. So if you have trusted Christ with your Lord, as your Lord and Savior, you have something amazing placed inside of you. You did not earn it. You do not find yourself deserving of it, but Jesus, being good and gracious and loving, has given that to you. If you have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, it's something for you to consider. Have I repented of my sin? Do I believe that only through, through, through fellowship with Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection is that greater reward waiting for me? Let me put it this way. Is that God wants to do a work in you before he can do a work through you. God wants to work in you before he can work through you, but I think oftentimes we get caught thinking, but God, what about the work you want to do for me? And God says, no, 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 no. I've already given you that great gift. I've given you the greatest reward. I want to do an amazing work in you. I want to transform your hearts, your desires, your minds, the way you schedule, prioritize everything about your life, and I will do amazing work through you. That God wants to do a work in you so that he can do a work through you. But there is no God, there's no gospel without Jesus Christ. We have to receive that gift to take what he offers, but it's up to us to put it into practice. Simply, God never withholds salvation from anyone, but it's always us who rob ourselves of its great reward. Paul continues in verse 14. He says this, he says, so do everything without grumbling. Everyone grumble. Let's try that again. Do everything without grumbling. Everybody grumble. Yeah, pretty good, decent. You guys aren't really good grumblers. Maybe that's a good thing. All right. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among like the stars in the sky and as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, he's talking about potentially losing his life. On the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He says, do everything without grumbling. One nerd out for a quick second. Now this word grumbling here. The word grumbling refers to a couple different things. It can uh, refer to complaining. It can refer to arguing. And it can also refer to comparing. And interesting enough, it's the same word in the Greek New Testament as it is from the Hebrew Old Testament. They share its root. And it's the same word that is used for when Israel grumbled about God to Moses. So when Israel would go up uh, to, to Moses and say, Yo, Mo, how come, you know, where's God at right now? He used to be here. We're not feeling him too much. What's going on? Hey, hey, Moses, this is supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. Where's all the milk and honey at? Well, you, you know, God, everyone else has got judges and, and, and kings ruling over them. How come we don't got any? Well, well, what do you mean don't have any other gods before me? How come you don't want us to enjoy life or find fulfillment there? That's what grumbling is. 
The truth of the matter is, is we are all professional grumblers, right? No one had to teach you how to grumble. You're just born with that ability. I've got two kids at home. I've got a, a five-year-old. His name is Jude. And then our daughter, Avery, she's going to turn three this week. Now, she's like one of the cutest girls you will ever meet. She's always dressed in pink and sparkles and rainbows and unicorns and princesses all combined into one, right? Like if highlighter just existed in a human being, that's our daughter. And uh, there's this nightly routine or this daily routine we have because we want to be at least good parents. So we give them vitamins. Now, of course, they got to be Flintstone vitamins. Am I right? And of course, they got to be the gummy version. And then we realized we made a mistake by making these like candy. And so our son, he gets two gummies, vitamins, one in the morning and one at night. But because we don't want our daughter to be too healthy, she only gets one, either one in the morning or one at night. Well, a couple weeks ago, uh, they had both taken their, their vitamin in the morning. And the nighttime came along. We're getting the kids ready for bed. And we say, all right, Jude, it's time for your gummy. And Avery walks straight up and she just goes like this. I said, what do you need? She goes, well, where's my gummy? Maybe not as eloquently as that. She just said, Flintstone? And I said, oh, no, sweetie, like you already had yours today. Like, like too much vitamin isn't really good for you. I don't know if that's true, but it's probably a thing. And I kid you not, this cute unicorn loving highlighter of a human being becomes demon possessed for the next 30 minutes. I kid you not, like you think, like, like she, she starts rolling on the ground and pulling her hair for one simple, where's my Flintstone gummy? And it's just like, sorry, like we can't have it. And then we put her in her room and she's banging on the door and she's kind of flipping stuff over. I'm like, do we need to call the elders and get an exorcism going on here? Like, I don't know, like it's, she's losing her mind. And it's purely from the simple, how come Jude got a gummy and I didn't? I said, Wow. We really need to learn, figure out why your mom is teaching you these things. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We didn't have to teach her that. It exists. But that's what grumbling is, is basically how come blank? How come he got a gummy and I didn't? How come they got the promotion and it passed me by? How come things didn't work out for me like I hoped they would? How come when I prayed, God didn't answer in the way that I thought? How come we don't do things like the way we used to? How come, how come, how come, how come? And as a pastor, I have to stand back and say, I think grumbling is one of the best places to see where idolatry of the heart rests. Because I believe that where you constantly either complain, argue, or compare your life, there's probably a sense you've put a lot of value in that above and beyond Jesus Christ. See, let's remember who's writing this. The Apostle Paul, he's in prison for preaching the gospel. And he's not going writing to the, the church in Philippi, well, this isn't fair. How come I'm in prison and you're not? This is unjust. This isn't right. He just says, I have found a secret to be content in any and every situation. Begs the question, where is the greater reward in that? You see, when we compare, what we essentially do is compare what we have to what we desire. But that is the way of the world. The way of the disciple is to compare what you have, to know, to realize, to understand every good and perfect gift comes from above, and to now to say, well, I will compare what I have been given to what Jesus has called me to do with it. That I compare my job, I compare these relationships, I compare my finances, my house, my car, whatever it is, as a way to say, God, you are the master, I am the steward. You have called me to be a good representation of your heart, of your will. 
So if you want to compare, compare yourself to Jesus. His holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, the way he is perfect and you are not. If you want to complain, try this on for a size. Complain about your sin. Complain about your shortcoming. Complain about the way in which you are not always right. And to always remember the goodness and the graciousness of our Heavenly Father. See, when we begin to compare, when we begin to complain, when we begin to argue, we are missing out on that greater reward of gratitude. So get this. I need you all, if you miss everything else, get this this morning, okay? Living a life of gratitude is not just be more thankful. Living a life of gratitude is not just to say, hey, try to be more more, more thankful for the things that you have. Because in that instance alone, you are still focusing on the ups and downs of this life. You are still focusing on the things that you either have or don't have, and you're trying to focus, though, on what is maybe going well or not so well, trying to find gratitude there. That the way of gratitude is not to focus on the ups and downs, not to focus on what you have today that might be gone tomorrow. The way that you live a life of gratitude is to say, I will focus on one thing above all else that grace of Jesus, that salvation that he has placed in me, and I will focus on working that out. That is the secret to gratitude. That is how we live out that salvation in fear and trembling because we have said, I will not focus on the things of this life. I will rather find the truth that Jesus has placed in me and let it transform me to the inside out. Paul will later go on to say, In Philippians 4, skip over uh, a page or so, in chapter 4, verse 10, he goes on to say this. He says, so I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you, this is important, you, at last, you renewed your concern for me. He's saying, I am grateful that you have taken concern for me. I see something changing. I see something different the way that you used to live and to act. Indeed, You are concerned, but you even had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need. Interesting for a man who's in prison for preaching the gospel. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. He says, your concern for me is encouraging. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He says, my concern for you. He doesn't say, your concern for yourself. He says, your concern for me has led me to realize that I, as well as you, have maybe learned the secret to being content. Now, the secret to being content, he says, in life is not the power of positive thinking. The secret to being content in life is is being really good at your investment portfolio. The secret to being content is finding concern with yourself and others. The secret to being content is realizing this life is not about me. It's about loving God, loving others, and serving both. Concern for Christ has always been the way that we concern for others. So let me put it this way. Concern yourself with Christ over the concerns of the world. And what I want to say next, and I need you to hear this. I'm going to say this probably a little pastorally, hopefully. 
is give you an example of how I think this should be playing out in our lives as a church and as Christians. Tomorrow is a super important day for us as a nation, is it not? It's the day in which we set aside to remember and to honor and to reflect on the life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. It's the day in which we set aside not just to remember his life and that he died, but what he stood for in the social rights movement. I'm not sure how many of you were, but last Sunday was Police Officer Appreciation Day. I find it a little ironic that these two camps, if you will, that have been so tenuous, especially in recent years, these days set aside to remember and to respect fall so closely together. Following the concerns of the world, what I am seeing says you have to choose. Following the way of the world says you got to pick one side or the other. Following the ways of the world say, are you going to celebrate that day? or that day? Are you going to stand here, or are you going to stand there? The way of the world says there is a fence, and you need to pick a side. But if we look to the gospel, and we say, I will concern myself with Christ above all else, you know what you don't have to do, is you don't have to pick a side. That's why I love Jesus. Jesus said that I have come to give you life. The Apostle Paul will later say in Romans chapter 5 that Christ came to die for the left. No, wait, no. Christ came to die for the rich. Nope, wait, he didn't say that. Christ came to die for all those whose life was... Wait, nope, that's not it. Christ came to die for the sinner. Being concerned with Christ says, I can in one instant... I can stand boldly and proudly with my brothers and sisters for decades, no, centuries, who have faced pain and injustice because Christ would be very much concerned about that in their life. At the same time, too, being concerned with Christ also says I can appreciate and say thank you to the men and women who on a daily basis put their life on the line to keep us safe. The concerns of the world would say you got to pick one or the other. But being concerned with Christ says, no, 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 no. You don't have to pick a side. In fact, you shouldn't. If there's a fence, place yourself on the middle. Because in really, in the kingdom of God, there is no fence. In the kingdom of God, there is either sinner or saint. It doesn't matter how you vote. It doesn't matter how you think. It doesn't matter what you look like. There are people who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and there are people who are not. And regardless the stance of the conversation, there are people who need to be loved. There are people that we can stand with. Being concerned with Christ means we can definitely stand with those who are in pain and those who are hurting. At the same time, showing thanks and appreciation to those on a daily basis. You see, that's where gratitude is found. I have received something that is not of myself. True, everlasting joy and hope. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, he's not talking about deadlifting 400 pounds. He's not talking about slinging six touchdowns in the fourth quarter to make a massive comeback. He's talking about that steadfast obedience to remain laser-focused on the concerns of Christ above all else. You know, a couple years ago, uh, around the 2020 election, I received an email from someone and used to go to our church. And they said, hey, Eric, uh, election's like in a month or so. I haven't heard a sermon on how you're voting. 
I haven't seen a post to let me know how you're voting. And I just need to know if this is a church that I could, I need to know your stance. And I didn't reply. The next Sunday came along, I preached another message, and I got another email back from this same person. And the person said, well, I thought you, you showed your cards, is the way they put it. Because you said that one thing, and it sounded like you were definitely kind of liberal. But then you said this other thing, and it made you, me think that you were a conservative. And the only thing I could think of was like, it's working. And I didn't reply with one thing. I said, I want you to go read John chapter 8. Go read John chapter 8. Because for me as a pastor and us as a church, we want to be concerned with one thing and one thing only. That's Jesus Christ. His gospel. Obedient to him. See, in John chapter 8, there's this story in which the scribes and Pharisees, who are kind of Jesus' enemies and, and opponents, they wanted to entrap him. And so they go and they catch a woman in the act of adultery. And they drag her out of the home and they place her in the middle of the town square on the dirt. And they say to Jesus, all right, Jesus, Mr. Son of God, Mr. Messiah, Hamashiach, let's see what you say. The law says she needs to be stoned. What say you, Jesus? And I just imagine they kind of like, <laughs> get him. Because I think in that moment, the liberal person says, well, that wasn't really fair and just to her. He better let her go. Let's see if he's compassionate and gracious. At the same time, perhaps the conservative person said, well, let's see if Jesus has a spine, if he has a respect for the law and the things of God. And it says that Jesus then actually begins to bend down and write in the sand. And we don't know what he's writing. Lots of speculation. And then he gets up and he says one thing. He says, he who is without sin shall cast the first stone. And it says one by one, starting with the oldest to the youngest, they all left. And then Jesus looked at the woman and he said, well, who is here to condemn you? She looks around. Well, no one, I guess. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't let you do whatever you want. But he doesn't stone you either. That is the power of the gospel. That is the power of the gospel working its way into our lives. I like to think is that as that woman went and lived her life from that point forward, she lived a probably gratitude-filled life. She probably thought of other people differently. She probably spoke differently about other people. Perhaps she did something a little bit different with her time, her treasures, the relationships that she pursued. You see, the gospel, the order matters. You are not condemned Go and sin no more. The gospel says that Jesus has concerned himself with you and I. That he came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to bear the punishment and the weight of our sins so that you and I can have life everlasting. But that, So that work can begin now and work its way out as we prepare to be with God. Simply put, as we can close our message this morning, gratitude is the gospel working its way out. Gratitude is so much more than have you been thankful? Do you celebrate Thanksgiving throughout the year? Gratitude is saying, God, you have given me something I did not earn. You have given me a gift I have not uh, in any way could repay you back. And so now you have placed that in me and now I will live out that gospel. We all know how to grumble. What would it look like for us as a church? What would it look like for you 
as a believer? What would it look like for you as a husband, as a father, as an employee? What would it look like for you as someone who belongs to a local church to say, I know how to grumble, but I want to learn that secret. I want to live out that gospel. Gratitude is oftentimes the best place you can look. How can you express that gratitude with your time? How can you express that gratitude in your relationships? How can you express that gratitude with your finances? How can you express that gratitude the way you talk about people to their face? How can you express that gratitude to the people that you talk about when they're not around? How do you express your gratitude to the people who think differently than you, who vote differently than you, who act differently than you, who like different movies than you? Gratitude is the gospel working its way out. Would you stand with us as we continue to worship the God of grace who has given us this free gift of salvation and eternal life?